one. And we are recording episode 933 on Wednesday, September 28th, 2022 at 2.03 p.m. Eastern time with the one, the only, Mr. Rick Prado, who is more of a badass in one minute of his waking day than I have been in my whole life. And I'm uh, I'm humble enough or at least uh, smart enough to admit that uh, your book is absolutely incredible everyone that listens to this podcast knows i burned through audiobooks uh 68 in the last or 68 in the year 2022 and uh no bullshit hand over my heart this is the best book i've listened to this year i genuinely mean that i would tell you that off air it's the same as on air i would take a lie detector test and say that is the best book i've listened to this year i highly highly recommend it to everybody it's on audible so you don't even have to read it 12 hours and 40 minutes long it's absolutely fantastic but so as to stop fanboying, Mr. Prado, please introduce yourself to all the listeners. Hello, everyone. My name is Rick Prado. I'm a retired CIA senior operations officer and paramilitary officer. And I'm uh, really glad to be on the show with you. Thank you, sir. Um, so your book, I would say, if I could give it a one a one sentence review, it is the best pitch for America as a business as a as a fraternity as something to join it is the best pitch for america i've heard anyone that listens to this podcast knows that i'm shamelessly patriotic i love this country i don't think there's anything wrong with loving your country i've interviewed delta force operators ground branch operators fossil boss dale comstock uh, ron moeller i've interviewed mike durant the the pilot shot down in mogadishu countless other veterans and I always come away with a strong sense of love for this nation, not in a not in a Hollywood way, but knowing that the reality is a lot less sexy, much like you talk about in your book. There's not there's not a Jason Bourne. The uh, the terrorist plot doesn't come together at the last second and you snip the wire. It's a very dirty, messy process that really only in hindsight can you see the the fruits of your labor. And, you know, it, it's. It's said so many times, but I know personally two of my good friends who I used to work security with at a bar, uh, Prince Blackosh from uh, from Kosovo and uh, uh, Ivan Georgiev from Sofia, Bulgaria, both my age, both drag their balls through glass to get a green card and then to get their citizenship here. And they have both gone farther than I ever will because they have a fire that they they know what it's like to go without. And you coming from a communist revolution by yourself, the only time ever seeing your dad cry. And then instead of coming here, and I think you said it towards the end of the book, it was it was just to come here and have the opportunity to work and to keep the fruits of our labor, not asking for anything. I mean, what a crazy idea, the ability to work your ass off and just get to keep the fruits of your labor. And at the beginning, you you go in and say, you know, if you say you want to join the FBI, you want to join the Air Force, you know, mom will cry, dad will be proud, so on and so forth. But there seems to be a guttural, reflexive and inaccurate reaction to someone saying they want to join the CIA, right? It's the they're drug dealers, they're gun runners, it's black ops. And you talk about your time there from the beginning to the end, how really they are the most heroic men and women that the world has ever seen. Um, and if you can't tell when I get nervous talking to a guest, I tend to talk a lot, which I normally don't do. 
what are your thoughts on the CIA now? What are your thoughts on my generation of millennials who seem to be, who seem to think that America is the great Satan? And where do you see the future of America going? I know there are several questions in there, so let's just start from the beginning. How do you view the CIA today? That's a very good question. And, and uh, one that I can caveat a little bit with the fact that I am prejudiced because it is my alma mater. And, but the one thing that I can assure you, Tommy, is that no matter how bad things are politically, how much the chasms are internally, the CIA continues to do things that only the CIA can do. We're not State Department, we're not the Federal Bureau of Investigations, we're a central intelligence agency. There's only two things that we do. We steal secrets for our president and we do covert action for our president. That's pretty much it. Yes, we do analytical, yes, we do this, but that is the core value of, of what the agency is. We've had good times, we've had better times, we've had bad times. I think we're coming out of a bad time. Um, I, and I think we're going into a, a uh, hopefully in the future we will get uh, a little bit more traction. But the single biggest problem for me with the agencies is when they put, put a, a political appointees at the helm of an organization that is as esoteric and counterintuitive as operates, you know, intelligence operations are. And my point is one of two. Uh, first, credibility. If you haven't come through the ranks, if you haven't sat like I have with a terrorist in a car in a back alley debriefing him for intel, if you have never done a surveillance detection route, if you never almost lost your life, how do you empathize with your troops? How do you respect and admire troops? A two-hour briefing by a staffer ain't gonna do it. So I'm a firm believer that we have plenty of smart enough people in the agency, Jose Rodriguez for one, who was my, uh, my boss in CTC once and was DDO subsequently. Those are the Gopher Black, uh, legendary friend. Uh, those are the kind of people that should rise to the DCI positions because then they have the best interest of the agency and of the mission. No matter who is in power, we're supposed to be a neutral organization like the military. So that's, I mean, that's, that's my take on, on, on the agency. I, they're still doing some great work. Recruiting is going to be a little harder because there, there is something that leads to your second question about this generation. And I've said this very often, Donnie. The biggest problem in the United States is we do not know how good we have it. We don't know how good we have it. I had a lady a few years, a few months ago, I was talking in, at, at, a, at a, giving a public talk and she said, uh, well, I've been to Mexico and it was, it was great. I said, ma'am, you went to Cancun on a cruise. <laughs> you have never, go to Guadalajara, go to some of these places. So even when Americans travel, we travel either on business, business class, five-star hotels, there's a big difference between that and living in a third world country, living in a second world country, worse yet, living in a country that is either under the, the yoke of communism or the yoke of terrorist type uh, radicalism. So there's, I've heard, I forgot who said it, but I had a friend who's traveled extensively and I never traveled when I was pre I didn't grow up hard. I went to private Catholic school of loving parents. I've known nothing but opportunity. Um, I was pre-med in college. I got into medical school, actually, uh, 
graduated from the University of Georgia, got into uh, the University of Miami, Miller School of Medicine, downtown Miami. And uh, unlike you, where you can blend in, uh, I don't think my fluorescent Irish skin was going to do too well there. <laughs> I ultimately decided not to go. I got in. It's probably my proudest achievement to date. Decided not to go. But I was studying all the time. I had a lot of friends who went and studied abroad in Europe. And, hey, that's that's cool. I didn't have the time to do that because, to me, it was organic chemistry. I was going to be studying 13 hours a day regardless if I could see the Eiffel Tower or just see the, you know, the Bulldogs practicing. So, But a lot of them would come back and they'd say, you know, the people who love America the most are the people that have never left. They said the more you travel, the more you realize that we're not all that. And, hey, that's fine. You don't have to like it. I'm not here to tell you you have to like it. I'm not here to tell you you have to – you know, like the Red Sox or the Yankees, it's, it's fine. But I've heard that before. The more you travel, the more you realize America's not so hot. And that the more time you spend abroad, the realize how you realize how great it is abroad. Well, one, I've never met anyone who has permanently left the United States. So that's bullshit. And two, the people I know who have spent the most time out of the United States, Ivan Georgiev and Prince Blackosh, who grew up in former Soviet bloc nations. Prince's father had he was a journalist in uh, Kosovo. He uh, he pressed he published a bad story on the Serbians in the late nineties. Had his arms and legs broken and was left on the front lawn. Luckily, he survived, and Prince remembers Marines standing guard outside of his house. Now, sure, you could criticize this and say this is jingoism, this is blind nationalism, and that's your right to criticize this. But the people I know who have spent the most time out of here are the ones who love it far more than. I have a flag behind me when I do the podcast. My my buddies from Europe are, they're the most obnoxious, red, white, and blue sunglasses, little flags in their hats, and they'll tear you a new one if you say anything bad about it. So I do see that, and it is disgusting to me. And it's also beautiful that that is part of America, is you're allowed to criticize it, and you can't do that anywhere else. But, and I'm hoping that maybe you can give me some some optimism I try to look at things in the grand scheme of the United States. You know, we've been at war before. We've been in, you know, 1812, been in two world wars. We've been in Vietnam. We went toe-to-toe with the Soviets. We almost blew ourselves up in 62. And I also look at the movement in the 60s and 70s. And I can only imagine that, I mean, it's one thing to see kids today not loving the United States. I can only imagine living World War II veterans 20 years out of Okinawa seeing hippies burn the flag so i feel like we've been here before and you don't have to sugarcoat it you can shit on it is there a reason to be optimistic will will the cream still rise to the top or are we on a downward spiral i'm an optimist uh besides being a patriot like you mentioned um you know my debt of honor to this country in spite of what i've tried to do is still uh, current. Uh, that's the reason for the book. I, I felt that this would be my last firefight where I could uh, put a uh, realistic light of what my agency really does. And most importantly, what my colleagues, some who are no longer with us, uh, have done for, for God and country. So, you know, I, 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 uh, I taught at Fort Bragg for about seven years. Um, three years ago, I stopped. And um, the one thing I used to come home and tell my wife, I said, this country will never have a shortage of warriors. We will never have a shortage of warriors. We lack leadership. And that is one of the things that we need for. You know, um, during Trump's uh, first election, 
there were 11 candidates, Republican candidates on that stage, and not a single one had served this country in any other way than politics. And the reason I, I say it goes back to what I said about the 80s. It's different when you have a George W. Bush senior who's a World War II veteran who saw his friends die, who saw the impact of, of, of uh, friendly death, who saw the impact of a successful war, uh, leading individuals like myself and my colleagues. Uh, it, it, is, it is, you know, it, it is what we need. You know, um, history repeats itself constantly. We don't learn from it. We really don't. And I don't like getting into politics, but I, I do like history. And I will give you an example. When Jimmy Carter took power, Jimmy Carter was one of the nicest, most moral guy that walked this earth. Nobody could argue that. But he was seen naive, and he was, and he was seen as weak. As soon as he took power, Afghanistan was invaded by the Russians, by the Soviets. Then. Shortly thereafter, around that time, our hostages in Iran go there for 444 days. He gave away the Panama Canal, which is one of the most strategic landmarks that we have in, in this continent, and almost pulled the troops out of, out of, out of South Korea. So uh, my point is when the, the isms that we're fighting, communism, they're all predatory animals. And if we come across as food, they're gonna try to eat us. And I think that there's plenty of examples of that. And going back to the, uh, to the hostage crisis, the day that Ronald Reagan raised his hand to be sworn in as president, the hostages were released minutes later. Why do you think that happened? It's it's kind of like when me and my three brothers would be being exceptionally rude. And it was a rare occasion when mom couldn't discipline us. My mom's a hard ass. But every once in a while, even at like 10, you know, we'd start to push back a little bit. Second dad came home, total ceasefire. <laughs> Say what you want. It wasn't a coincidence. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Right. The, the enemy reads us and plans against us. You know, the other big disadvantage that we have here, uh, besides the ridiculousness of no term limits for people to serve, um, is the fact that we have four year plans, actually, three year plans, because by the fourth year, that leader has to start going back for, you know, for a re election and everything else. Where the Russians, and the Chinese and the Iranians have 100-year plans. The Chinese have literally 15-year-long year, yeah. year -long plans and must tweak it as necessary to, you know, to capitalize on opportunities. But they know where they want to get 50 years from now. The Russians definitely do. The Iranians definitely do. They have different uh, goals, but they're all antagonistic to what we represent, which is, like you said earlier, the ability to be in a tree you can say this administration sucks or that administration sucks and you you don't get kneecapped and, and you don't get disappeared so yeah uh the chinese right the hunt the, the literal hundred year marathon uh 1949 to 2049 i've interviewed uh, brigadier general robert spaulding uh one-star general b2 spirit pilot 
President Obama's National Security Council, and then at the Hudson Institute. And I think he has his own company now. But his book, Stealth War, about the Chinese economic and social cyber war against us. Uh, and then his senior, um, Michael Pillsbury, who I believe was the Deputy Secretary of Defense, I want to say under Reagan, it might have been HW, his book, The 100-Year Marathon, about just that. If Regardless of even going into those, if you just bring up that the Chinese have a 100-year plan, people look at you like it's nuts, despite it being an openly... De- it's not classified. It's it's not even a white paper. It's just They just talk about it. They'll tweet it. They'll call it the 2049 plan. They do think on that level. It's kind of like what Ben Franklin said, you know, what, what kind of government do we have? A republic, if you can keep it. There seems to be some things that do come with with democracy, with a republic. We do have four-year plans, or as you said, three-year plans, and that is a drawback. But I don't think you can have I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too. I think in order to have a government of self-rule, the drawback is that you have three-year plans. And that's a major that's a major thorn in the side. You can't you can't deny that. You know, if you wanna, you know, if you wanna be a an all-natural bodybuilder. My friend from uh, Bulgaria, Ivan, that I mentioned earlier, is an all-natural bodybuilder. Makes a living off of it. He's sponsored. Lives out in Vegas. He looks like the Terminator. Every woman loves him. I mean, you want to hate him, but he's the sweetest guy in the world. But I mean, he talks about it. He was like, I, you know, told me I could make so much more money. I could make so much more money if I was just doing steroids. But on the other hand, he's like, I don't want my balls to go away, and I want to live a long time. And so, you know, there's your double-edged sword. He wants to live a long time. He wants to have kids and grandkids. He's probably not going to be on the front of bodybuilding magazine, but he's going to make a pretty penny. And the guy that does go that way is going to make more money, probably going to be dead at 40. I know that's kind of an absurd analogy, but okay, let's look at this podcast. The one thing I really stand for above all else is free speech. I'll have you on and talk about how great America is. And I'll have someone on tell me how bad America is, but I won't ever censor anything. And that's that's why I got permanently banned from YouTube was for interviewing Dr. McCullough and Dr. Malone, who just talked about vaccines. Give me the thumbs up. That's my that's my stamp of approval. I could be making a lot more money if I had just shut up and gone along. But I do stand for something and I don't make as much money, but I respect myself. I look in the mirror and I don't want to beat the shit out of myself. So there are, you know, pluses and minuses to a government of self-rule. But I think at the core of it is there has to be an inherent love of this nation. And even if you don't love the nation, as long as there are still some, like you talk about, the silent warriors, you don't get a ticker tape parade. You're not kissing the nurse in Times Square. Uh, as you've said, as Dale Comstock said, as, as Boz has said, there's no, no one knows. You don't want anyone to know because that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do. That is curtailed when you have a leader or leaders who either don't know what to do or they have inherent anti-American beliefs. Is something like the CIA you talk about towards the end of your book, you know, we always believe there was an agency within the agency, the super secret, ultra secret. And then as you climb up, you realize it's not there. Right. I do like to think that there is someone inside that that won't idly stand by as our nation is seemingly being demolished from within. 
I don't even really know if there's a question in there, but your thoughts on we're at a different war. This isn't this isn't invading Normandy. This is through social media. This is through censorship. This is through wokeism. This is through the destruction of the nuclear family. This is through inflation. This is through non-existent borders. This is through unconstitutional vaccine mandates. This is through this is through calling calling every male that wants to support the nation a, a Nazi. It's a different form of warfare, but it's efficient. How will the United States, not that you have a crystal ball, but how will the United States win this this ever-evolving battlefield? I think that one of the things that we've got going for us right now, that things are going so bad, or have been for a little bit, uh, that people are starting to wake up. Uh, you know, we, we're a pragmatic nation. Uh, not everybody is, is really deep into you know, uh, things like you and I are talking about right now. Um, but when things are really uh, affecting your family, your ability to teach your kids, to pay their schools, to pay the electricity, to feed them. Um, so I think that there's enough interest out there in making some kind of positive change that hopefully will show both parties that we need to have more than a three-year plan. And that's the difference. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that we should ever give up the, uh, the idea of four-year terms for sure. a president without real. That, that is sacrosanct. Um, the reason they do that in China and they do that in Russia is because they're, they've got the perpetual control over everybody. And that's not, what, that's, not, that's not the United States that I fight for. You know, so I'm totally in agreement with that. That said, I think that anybody who is holds office has to first and foremost defend this country. We have a lot of people, even in, in, in our politics, putting our country down. And that's doing a favor to the enemies that are spending money in psychological operations against us. You don't think that the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians capitalize on every little, you know, picadillo that's going on in the United States? Of course. Guess what? So do we. Sure. That's the game. Only that we're making it extremely easy for them and cheap because they're barely having to invest other than stir the pot a little bit once in a while. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I honestly hope that uh, we can become a little bit more central. I think there's been a, uh, a wide divide between, you know, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Uh, I understand the differences. I have no problem with them, except that there's a radical element of formulating, which to me is anti-American. And any politician that I vote for has to convince me that he or she loves this country. trying to remain optimistic and i normally get shit on for that for being optimistic most notably uh dale comstock who i've he's probably been on here 50 times uh uh former delta force you know i'll be like dale we got to stay optimistic and he'll be like tom you need to be like you need to be loading your gun boiling water getting food and i'll be like no dale we got to stay optimistic." so i get that but i have to for my own sanity so i can wake up and keep going um is there a silver lining? And I believe this is kind of what you were getting at. So let's look at the body, right? 
when your body when your body actually starts to starve right this is i can, i can talk about this in the biology wheelhouse when your body starts to starve the first thing you do is you start burning fat and then you start burning muscle but if you cut below such a low threshold your body will actually slow down its metabolic rate it's the only proven thing to actually increase lifespan in mice and dogs and it's it's insane you start activating all these pathways all these genetic pathways to burn less right i'm I eat a little less than I should because I got I got some chub that I need to get rid of. I'm 32. I can't be I can't be saying I'm old. I still don't have that excuse. There's a different level though in true starvation where the billion years of evolution comes in hand. I would like to imagine we know there's a defcon system. We know there's a cogcon system, continuity of government, continuity of operations and during constitutional government there are things that our country mirrors. And that's one of my favorite books, Raven Rock by Garrett Graff, all about continuity of government. I talk about it nonstop. There are things that happen. For instance, on September 11th, 2001, the, the gears, the cogs, if you will, of continuity of government start turning. Lines of succession, Air Force One, the E-4B Night Watch, uh, the, the, the blast doors at NORAD, Mount Weather, Raven Rock, the Greenbrier Hotel, all these things start shifting. You start moving different assets. You, you know, notifications go out. I believe we notified Putin on September 11th, 2001. So we are not preparing for a first strike, but we know you're looking at our stuff as you always do. And we are moving everything. There are effects that come from that. Could there be a silver lining in that we are seeming to stray so far? from the acknowledgement and realization of where we are, that we are in for its drawbacks. We are in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't get much better than this. Not much, it doesn't get better than this. Sometimes you need to have a little bit taken away before people start to stand up, right? If you just went to 1965, right? And you got guys like my great uncle Rich, who was 18 on Omaha Beach, and you saw a bunch of hippies, right? Or me at 18, you'd probably say this place is so screwed. What happened? But it's almost been 60 years since then. And I've interviewed a ton of guys who were born after that date, who are as patriotic as the day is long. So sometimes you kind of got to get kicked in the ball. Sometimes you got to be told no. Sometimes you got to just get turned down by a hot girl at the bar before you're like, oh God, I'm not 18 anymore. I got to hit the gym. Sometimes you really do need a kick in the ass to get going. And like a genetic pathway or like DEFCON, it's not all bad. Things get set into motion. You start sharpening the blade and you go, all right, I'm not top dog, right? They always say it's easy to win a championship. It's harder to defend it. Is there a silver lining in all of this? Is there a silver lining in the America's a bunch of Nazis? We're an imperialist power. We, you know, we're terrible. China's social credit score is great. We're we're polluting the world. You kind of need to see all that to have a bunch of guys like myself. Just two years ago, I'd interview a Delta Force guy because it was neat. Versus now, I'm like, what is actually wrong with this nation? Maybe you need that. Maybe you need to have a bunch of cocky 32-year-olds like myself who have taken the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth, all for granted until it starts getting taken away from you and you realize, oh, someone has to defend this. And then eventually the realization comes, oh, no one's doing this for me. I have to do it. Is there any logic in that? Or is this just delusional optimism? No, I mean, look, I'm an optimist, like I said before, but like your Delta friend, 
I have ammo and I have guns and I know <laughs> yeah. food and I know I can survive and I, worst comes to worst, I'll steal it. But uh, um, that is, uh, in, in my profession, we have a saying that what usually doesn't happen is what you prepare for. So that's the prep part of myself, but I am optimistic. Um, there, there's a maturity process here. A lot of the negative stuff that you're hearing in, in, in the middle of a generation, which, you know, in, in my age, when you were 20 years old, you were, an old, you, you were already a grown up person. That, that was the, kind of like the standard. Let's face it, now people don't even get married until they're in their 30s. Um, so I think that there's evolution from the idea of a teenager that believes that other things better than what they have, um, that, you know, their iPad not working is, is not just a one, you know, a first world problem. Uh, and then all of a sudden they start maturing because they get married, they have children. Children are the most wonderful uh, thing to ground you on because all of a sudden, all the fantasies, all the utopias seem to fade for the realism that you have that kid to take care of. So that's what I'm hoping that as a nation we mature, that this generation does. Um, I, I honestly believe that it's, it's not going to be a drastic change. I don't want a drastic change. Drastic changes are, 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 are counterproductive. But we do need to shift our political parties to a posture that we are looking out for the best of the country. You know, the one example that I always use being Cuban and as you know, I came to Cuba by myself to an orphanage and all that. Um, you know how many thousands of Cubans are dead in the ocean from trying to leave Cuba in things like bath bathtubs, 55-gallon drums, you know, 12-foot boats, thousands. Now, name me how many Americans have died trying to leave Key West to go to Cuba. Zero. Um, so I, I do believe that there are certain realities that people are going to start feeling, you know, I, I asked one of the things that I think is people's attention because it's affecting everybody right or left. It is. A, and, uh, so hopefully if we can start thinking more of what's good for America, what's good for us, because I will tell you the one thing that is for me, I, I should make a plaque out of this. I pray every day that God does not forgive, forget the United States because the day that it forgets, he or she forgets the United States, he's given up on the world because we are the only entity out there that is willing and able and proven with our allies. Don't get me wrong. I'm all about the Brits, great with the Aussies, even the Poles are good, good allies. But at the end of the day, you know, whether it was World War I or World War II, or the fight on communism and the fight on terrorism, the United States has always been the country that puts not only its financial, but his personal gain. Like the old saying, the only territory that the United States gained after World War II were the cemeteries of our veterans overseas. Yes, sir. And it's the only one that does do that. It's in the world of doing the right thing, we can all have these ideas of, I want to do this and I want to do that. And then push comes to shove and you're like, I got to pay my power pill. I got to pay my internet bill. I got nothing to give to anybody else. How absurd is it that at the biggest level, there is a country 
that not in some wishy-washy, you know, we'll build a bench and put a plaque on it that says world peace, that there's actually a nation that will even try to do the right thing. That's absurd. Like, that is absurdity. That's actually doing the right thing. To me, that is the idea that that is not just a propaganda piece. And I'm sure there are critics that will say that. And hey, again, what a beautiful place where you can criticize it and you're not decapitated in the street. I do think that there is an importance in acknowledging that there is no other bastion. There's nowhere else to run. You can you can emigrate. I mean, if you want to go live in long, sure, you can. But in terms of running from a threat, from a communist takeover, from a theocratic dictatorship, where North Korea, if you leave, your grandmother will be killed, or in Iran, where if you're gay, you'll be beheaded and thrown off a uh, thrown off a, a building. Not only is there a place to run to, and not only is it a first world nation, it is the most advanced first world nation with the biggest guns and weapon systems the planet's ever seen. That doesn't happen. This is a fluke. This is a, this is a, you roll the dice 10,000 times. How many times will you get double sixes that land on top of each other? And we're taking this double six and going, see, yeah, I, I grew up, I grew up in New Hampshire and I'm not a huge sports fan, but all my family is. I don't really appreciate that I got to see the Patriots win in 2001, 2003, 2004, see the Red Sox win in 2004, 2007, 2008, see the Celtics win, the Bruins. I've barely ever played. I went to the University of Georgia. I went to one football game, but I grew up with the norm being, oh, you just get Tom Brady. What do you mean you haven't seen seven Super Bowls by the time you graduate college? All my friends in Atlanta are going wild when they're in the in the uh, in the uh, Super Bowl at the Patriots. I didn't care, and then when we won, I was like, "Yeah, oh, no, there's another one." To me, that is what it's like to be an American: is to grow up in New England, unaware of the Red Sox curse from 1918 to 2004, and unaware of what it's like to not have Tom Brady. I didn't know what it was. Versus when I went to and Valdosta State University for my first two years of college. I mean, it was good. I think most people in the world would, would kill to be able to go to an American institution, but it wasn't great. Uh, when I went to a pre-med advisor, she said, you should really think about something else because your grades are terrible. And I was like, well, I think I'd like to be a doctor. And she was like, well, maybe you should try something else. And I was like, all right, fuck you. No one really cared. If you tried to get better in class, no one really cared. You had a professor that maybe cared. And that was the only time in my life that I've only ever experienced relative suffering. And then I transferred to the University of Georgia and I can only imagine that that is the feeling times 10,000 what an immigrant feels. The facilities were better. They had a whole, they didn't just have a, a, a they had a whole building just for pre-med students. They had doctors that would come and teach and give you advice on how to craft a letter of recommendation. There was a hospital that had a literal program with the University of Georgia. You can come shadow here and get volunteer hours. I came there and I was like, are you kidding me? I ran a train on it. I was like, I'm using every expense you guys have. I, I maxed out my letters of recommendation. I maxed out my shadowing hours at the hospital to the point where they're like, dude, stop coming. Like I did it all. And I got into medical school. And I remember thinking everyone here, I'm like, you don't know what you have. And that's from a guy that went to private Catholic school my whole life. I've never experienced wanting. I've never gone hungry. I kind of think that's what you need is sometimes you need to just feel the burn of, 
not having it is great. And you can hear individuals like yourself talking about it, but it really doesn't hit home in the bones until you experience it yourself. And I think right now, for the first time, a lot of people are experiencing it. Their groceries are twice as much. They can't get gas. They, for the first time ever, they're, they're being told you can't talk about certain things online. Maybe this is what we need. Maybe you need a taste of communism to get your act up. I don't know. Again, not really a question in there. I'm just rambling to you, but. No, but I, I totally agree, Tommy. I mean, you know, we, uh, like I said, we don't know how good we have it. So we take for granted uh, what we have. And, and uh, I believe that this, this, this shift right now, economic-wise and everything else, uh, we've had some great periods after some terrible periods, you know, from the, uh, you know, the previous recessions and, and, and world wars and, and the, the big depression and all that kind of stuff. Uh, people who survived those come back uh, stronger, more determined. And I think that that's the backbone of this country. I think when my father, a lot of Cubans, when they left Cuba to come to the United States, their dream was to go back. Their dream was to go back because that's where mom was or where my grandfather's grave and all that great stuff. My father had been in this country maybe two months and got his first job because he was loading trucks and, and mowing lawns for, for quite a while there. And, uh, he said, we're not going anywhere. We became citizens, residents and citizens, the day we were legally allowed to do so. And my dad, until the day that he died, never missed voting in an election. That's the example that I grew up with. The appreciation for the country. Don't get me wrong. My dad loved Cuba. I remember a lot about Cuba. You saw it from the book. I experienced a lot of things in Cuba. Um, I have incredible memories, especially of my childhood, because it was far from, you know, from normal, for lack of a better word. But uh, absolutely, I think that we're, we're, we're in a position to come out of this better. Of course, the other side of the coin is if we do not, it's like an airplane, you know, you can only let it lose power and high, you know, altitude before you can, before you can pull it back up. So I'm hoping that we're, we'll start doing some normal, you know, uh, recovery, you know, and, and uh, go from there. Um, you mentioned several times in your book, and I actually earlier this year read, I think the author died like 20 years ago. I didn't realize it until after I was finished with the book, so I was kind of put down. But uh, I read um, Donovan, about Wild Bill Donovan. And, uh, I mean, that guy was an absolute madman. I mean, what did he say? He was in World War One, and he was leading soldiers, and he was, and like, they were getting shot at, and the soldiers were vomiting. And I think that's when he got his nickname, right? They're like, why do you keep going? And he's like, what an honor it is to die in the fight. And they're like, this guy's wild. And for everyone that doesn't know, he was, right, he was, he was involved at the, not involved, headed up the, the OSS, the, the precursor, the predecessor to the CIA. You have legends like Billy Waugh, who, uh, you know, I first heard about him several years ago in Annie Jacobs, Annie Jacobson's book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. And he is just, I mean, he is the original, he is the Babe Ruth of special forces. And I know you got to know him and train under him. When you I, uh, Billy is a very, very good friend of mine. And it's a perfect example 
of the kind of warriors we have. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason I'm smiling is because just two days ago, I got this in the mail. Really wild. And <laughs> this is a demo knife. Uh, there's the uh, author, of course, you've heard of Robert Young Pelton. And uh, he's good friends with Billy. And he was making fun of the uh, knife that I have on the cover of the book. And I told him, I said, I didn't pick that. That was the, what the publishers thought was, this is the Billy Waugh signed knife. So I was talking to him yesterday, thanking him for uh, letting Pelton uh, do that for me. Uh, That's awesome. Perfect top for me. You know, uh, Wild Bill Donovan, uh, I have a crap load of books in my house. But there's three books that sit behind my desk. And that is Wild Bill Donovan's story. Teddy Roosevelt and Wyatt Earp. Yeah. For me, there's there's something to said there, and they all have that madness, but for a good reason. Yeah. It's yeah. it's like, you know, thou shalt not steal. Well, that is true, but I have stolen yeah. secrets, equipment, uh, whatever it is, but I did it not for my personal gain, I did it for my country. So um, yeah, I think that there's there's uh, a little bit of madness in most people who um, really go to the end to, to fight and, and, and make a difference. And while Bill Dunham is a perfect example, you know, Medal of Honor winner, First World War guy, starts the OSS, gives birth to the CIA. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. So uh, glad to hear we're mutual fans. <laughs> Wild Bill had, I think, probably my favorite. There's two of my favorite things. Um one was when he was in Paris and I guess Ernest Hemingway was there and they like commandeered. Oh, I don't think it was an army Jeep. I think it was like some like 1920s model, just like big kind of like Corella DeVille, long swooping, great Gatsby ish car. They like commandeered that and were just tearing through the, through the streets of Nazi occupied Paris. And like, I think like Hemingway had a cigar and, um, and Donovan was holding like a like a 1918 or something. And there was some soldier that wrote like wrote about it like decades later. And he's like, he's like, I'd never done a drug in my life, but I swore I was high because I looked twice. And I said, is that Ernest Hemingway and Bill Donovan and Nazi <laughs> occupied? And they the legend is that they go into the Ritz Carlton and uh, uh, that there are Nazis jumping out of uh, you know windows and, and tying tying bedsheets together and leaving as they went in, because they went in, it was Donovan, Hemingway, and I think, uh, I think 67 uh, GIs. And they went in and they like fired around a gunfire and then said, we need 69 martinis. And that night, Donovan's like, I slept in a bed that the night before uh, uh, a Hugo Boss wearing SS officer was in. That's one insane story. Another one is, um, I think it was like the first silenced pistol. Uh, I guess the precursor to like the well rod, maybe it was the well rod and he wanted to show it off to FDR and he was buddies with FDR and FDR for, you know, all the criticisms from him. Like he at least had the foresight to listen to Donovan on several things. And Donovan walks into the oval office, FDR is in his wheelchair and he's, uh he's talking to, he's talking to a, a secretary, but she's next to him and they're both like looking out the window or something. Donovan walks in behind them. And he takes a sandbag and he takes the pistol and he fires seven rounds into it, empties it, completely silent. And then she leaves and, you know, FDR turns around with his big like French cigarette and he's like, Bill. And he goes up to him and he flips the pistol around, wraps the, the silencer in a, in a cloth 
and he hands him the, the, the handle and he goes, watch your hand. Don't get burned to show him. They instead of just walk because maybe he knows he's maybe he thinks he's lying. Hey, look, I just shot this seven times. Well, you could have just brought in a sandbag with seven bullet holes. He goes, watch the handle, Mr. President. And that was I forget what led to that, but that led to like he was like, all right, Bill, like whatever you need, <laughs> go get it. I, I just walked into the Oval Office, shot seven rounds and then handed him the pistol. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, and then sorry, the last one. The last one is they had created a gun that was actually a camera. And it was, you know, the trigger was the to capture had the big scope on it and they'd sent some like oss boys to the roof uh across the white house and he was like take some pictures and uh he said the guys were scared shitless and you can like look through the pictures and the first one's them seeing like some marines outside this is after pearl harbor the second picture is one marine noticing them the third picture is like all of them pointing up and then the fourth picture is them getting on a tripod and one of them starts to feed it and they stood up and like Donovan ran across the street and was like, it's all good. It's OSS. Like, but sorry, I don't mean to be fanboying about Wild Bill Donovan, but that guy was insane. That guy was absolutely insane. Yeah, it's, but where was I going with that? You know, I had the, uh, one of the biggest honors for me in the agency was working for Wild Bill Casey. Oh yeah. Um, Bill was another legendary guy. Very different than, than Wild Bill uh, Donovan because he was not a physical guy. He was a very smart, very, very smart man. But he was fearless. Um, I, I see that in, in, in real leaders. You know, guys like Kofor Black. Kofor was my boss in CTC when, when 9-11 happened. He was chief of station in Khartoum when Billy Waugh found Carlos the Jackal and was doing mm -hmm. surveillance on on um, Bin Laden on my behalf, because at the time I was deputy chief of the Bin Laden task force uh, called uh, Alec. So, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the madness that runs through guys like the Wild Bills, he literally wasn't afraid of anything. And he made, you know, the dictum for us to go into Nicaragua and help the Contras overthrow that communist regime, which we did through election, we forced them to a legal election and they lost. Uh, so that's a covert action star on the wall uh, for several reasons. But um, I, I really enjoyed uh, talking to Bill Casey because I had always read about Bill Donovan. And now I hear I have almost like the reincarnation of, uh, of one of my childhood heroes. They were, they were a different level of controlled insanity. And so and I look at like a Billy Waugh and I can only imagine, and maybe I'm not putting words in your mouth, but thoughts in your head. I know for me, whenever I look at someone that's come before me, whether it's like my dad or I love, I love doing a podcast. I've been doing it for two and a half years, almost three years. And then I look at, you know, I started listening to Joe Rogan probably less than a year after he started his podcast. I didn't even know it was a podcast. I was just listening to clips when I was pre-med. And I was like, I like this guy. And kind of watching him turn into what he is now. And there's part of me that will just always, like, look up to that, right? Being pre-med, my, my uncle, my godfather, who I'm named after, uh, went to Duke Medical School halfway through medical school, got in a car crash, and uh, had half of his brain destroyed, and then went back to medical school and still graduated. And he said, look, I did it with half a brain. You can do it with your whole brain. There's a certain level of just, like, respect that I'll just, I'll always have. 
And I think it's good. I think it's what keeps us pushing forward is whether or not, you know, whether or not Tom Brady is better than his role model. It's always good to put them on pedestals because it drives you to new heights. And then the guy after you will go, I got to get better. And that's, you know, that's just why we get better and better. Do you look at someone like, like Billy Waugh and do they cast a shadow on you in your mind? Do they, or do you see eye to eye with him? And I know obviously he's still alive. And so I don't, again, I don't know if that's weird, but is there any sort of, and there's a, there's a, there's a question after this, but, but do you? I, I will tell you, I, I was literally on the phone with him yesterday because of the night he told me, you know, and shooting the crap. And he's 92 years old. Mm-hmm. He's got eight holes in his body, you know, left for dead. He jumped the nukes and he's done all these, all these yeah. crazy things. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, will say, oh, you know, like Billy, I said, no, I said, look, I have stayed humble, not because I'm humble, but because I was always surrounded by people that were bigger than life. Yeah. My boss in Honduras, when I started the Contra program, was a guy named Carl Ray. Can't tell the last name. He jumped in Corregidor, into Corregidor when he was 18. Jesus Christ. He was Army Special Forces, and he was one of our guys in Laos for the agency. That was my boss. Those kind of individuals that you sit there, Dewey Claridge, the guy who started the counterterrorism center, the counterterrorist center. You know, I was always surrounded by individuals uh, that were bigger than life. And Billy Wall was one of them. I mean, Billy Wall, when he finished his SF career and had a little side turn there doing some stupid stuff, he came into the agency on contract and he did over 20 years with us. I met him in 1990s when we became friends. So, um, I, I cannot compare myself to, to Billy Waugh. I, I think the, the one thing that I, one of the many things I love about Billy is that he still doesn't think he did enough. Yeah. He still does not think that he did enough. Yeah. And that's, but that's, that's, what, that's, that's warrior. Yeah. That's what drives, but that's what drives that madness is what drives you to, to untouched heights. You have to be, I mean, there's a level of insanity. There's a, there's a story of um, I forget who, again. I I don't follow sports at all, but some guy on a different team, Tom Brady invited him out to like his mansion, and he was like, "Oh, it's so cool! I'm gonna go shoot the shit with a goat." And you know, he's like, "Maybe I'll finesse this into getting traded to the Patriots." And he goes there and whatever loafers like a polo. He goes, "Brady had me running roots in his backyard, like carefully manicured backyard." He had me running over flowers, knocking over. He's screaming at me. He's like, I was sweating. And like at the end of the day, I threw up on like my Gucci pants and it was like off season. And, but he never wants to him. It was just, this is another day. Why are we not sharpening the sword? And you have to have that to consider that when you look at yourself like that and you go, I, I, it's not that I'm humbled. Like I'm humbled, right? There's one thing to be humble. It's another thing to involuntary being humble uh uh invokes there's some sort of conscious act being humbled is a no i didn't take a knee i was put on my knees but i would imagine he probably looks at you and is like this guy's a real one so when you look at that and you can't compare yourself to him but in my mind i'm like what do you mean you're both insane is there any hope in there I always use this analogy. 
you know, my dad would be like, you guys are always on your cell phones. You're always doing this. And I'm like, and, and your dad was probably like, you know, you got all you guys do is watch TV. And his dad was probably like, all you do is listen to radio. And his dad's probably like, all you guys do is use the telegram. And his dad's probably like, what are these cars? We used to use horses and on. And it, back in the 1812, they're like, my dad used to use a musket. And the guy before that had a powdered wig. And the guy before that came over on the Mayflower. And I got on and on and on, which is great. That's what pushes us forward. And I'm sure God, God, you know, if, if I ever have kids one day, I'll look ahead and be like, you're always in your VR helmets and it'll go on forever. But we somehow managed to keep going. Is the fact that you look at Mr. Wall and are humbled. Is there any logical optimism in there to say, well, then it will keep going? It, it is because... Like I like I mentioned, when I worked, guys, uh, and I mean special operations forces, because of course that I taught it's advanced uh, special techniques. Um, you got seals, you have pararescue, you have combat controllers, you have marine raiders, and of course green berets. And I used to bring Billy Waugh in all the time to to dinner afterwards, just bring the instructors and some of the students because I wanted them to meet somebody of that caliber. Uh, I, I think that when you have icons like that, they do give us hope, they give us guidance, they give us an example, and they kind of, what you alluded to with the insanity, that insanity for the right reasons, if you're doing it for, for the right reasons, usually gets some hellacious results. Because let's face it, CIA does things that no other agency does. And we have a, we have a joke. We always say, you know, if, if it was easy, State Department would do it. Yeah. We are supposed to do the things that nobody else is set up to do. Uh, and all overseas, we don't do stuff in the States. But uh, it, we, without a doubt, uh, leaders are leaders. And, and uh, that's what we need more of. And, but and even in those brackets, like Billy Wall, Billy Wall was a leader. He, he's always been a leader. He was a leader in the agency. He was definitely a leader in Vietnam. But by example, not by just words and, and you know, uh, philosophies and stuff. You know, he was the real deal. He is the real deal. Didn't he try to enlist when he was like 13 years old or something? He, in Annie Jacobson's book, he talks about how he was in a movie theater and like the sheriff came in of whatever town he was in. And, you know, they're like, you know, Pearl Harbor's been bombed. And he was so, he got so jacked up. I think he like ran away. He like saved up his money, bought a pair of boots at an army surplus store and tried to enlist. And then like the enlister like called his mom because he was like 13 or something. <laughs> it's yep. like, no, you can't do this. Yeah. yeah, just madness, but controlled madness, not not cowboy, not I have a death wish, but rather the sort of like, it's a game of chicken. Like, you want, do you want crazy? Like, I'll go crazy with you. Like, we'll dance. Like, one of us isn't going home and I don't care who it is. You kind of got to go full, like as white as I am, I think I'm like one thirtieth Apache Indian or Abenaki, and I always wonder, like, you got, I think you kind of have to have that sort of like, you look into their eyes and you're like, oh, I don't think this guy cares if he goes home. That's how you stare them down. I mean, you talk about it. It's not the, it's not the cowboy on the white horse who always does the right thing. Well, it is that, but it's also because he's the baddest motherfucker from Horizon Horizon, and you, we're not America is not what it is because we are all angels with with rings over our head. I mean, look at Curtis LeMay. 
you know, Strategic Air Command, who led up the bombing uh, campaign over uh, over mainland Japan. They were worried about him because they wanted a, an untouched city to use the nuclear bomb on. And they're like, Curtis is burning this country from uh, coast to coast. And he was at the front of the formation. He wasn't from an armchair. He was at the front smoking a cigar like, like a psychopath. But you have to have that. That's what I hope is that we will continue to have continue to have men of a certain level of insanity that can control it just enough because you got to go to the brink. You got to look someone else in the eyes and they're like, oh, dude, this guy, you know, when you talk about you go into his house, right? He's at a Howitzer next to a sports car and um, he just had a, a water cooled, water cooled machine gun at the end of the driveway or at the end of the hallway. Yep. Yeah. Clear? Yeah. <laughs> you need that. That's exactly when, when I, when I heard that, I was like, good, that's, that's how I walk it out in my mind. I'm like, good. I, you want someone like that. Um, you see, the, the thing, Tommy, too, is our opposition has that madness. Sure. Because what Putin is doing right now, uh, it's a negative madness. And it's going to, as far as I'm concerned, hopefully will, you know, will be the downfall of, of the you know, Soviet Union part two. Yeah. Um, because this is it's replicating what they went through in Afghanistan. But madness is nothing more than believing in something so determined that you have no limits on what you're willing to do Correct. to defend it or to gain. And we call it madness because the average person says, oh, that's insane. But Tom Brady did not get to where he was by sitting around watching, playing video games of football. You know, it, it, is, it is that madness in, in, in the right channel. And no matter what your path is, if you believe in it, uh, I've been asked that a lot. How with, you know, the, the complexities of the agency, you know, the fact that you cannot tell your family, the fact that, you know, you're, you know, you can't uh, brag about any of the things you do until way after and after and, and clear the agency. Um, and, it, it, and why would you go in harm's way a tour after tour after tour? Because you got to believe. You gotta believe that you're making a difference. You gotta believe that uh, that you have a a path given by God that you need to follow. And by book or a crook, you're gonna make it. And um, you know, I I I have mentioned Kofer Black a couple of times. Kofer, I believe Kofer was picked by a higher being to be in CTC when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. Because I know some great, great leaders in the agency but he had a touch of madness that touch of i don't give a bleep i'm getting this done that came the to the you know president bush you they will have flies on their eyeballs mr president yeah when we start afghanistan so it's 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 madness to to the people that are that don't that lack that affinity and that conviction to make something right no matter what the cost is and, and that's what i try to try to emulate and, and, and uh try to teach wherever i can i think it you could maybe say it's uh it's the it's to it's the desire to be the one that goes home but if you can't go home neither of you are going home it's that level of I'm going to win this. And if I don't, neither of us win this, but there's, there is not a reality where you win this. It's just what and it to, is. And to do that, you have to believe in your mission. You have to you, believe in your call. 
you do. And, you know, nationalism is a, it's, you know, it's a big high. Religious fanaticism is a big high. You have to look at it beyond, am I just a cog in the machine of another, of another empire, the British, the Egyptian, the Genghis Khan, you have to. And that's where I always come back to, because I have to question myself all the time. I have to say, am I just seeing red, white, and blue like someone in Alexander the Great's army did? But I always have to remind myself, this is the only place where it is legal and even applauded to say, fuck this place, to say, fuck this flag. It is the only place you're able to do that and then run for office and enact change. It's the only place you can do. It's the only place where literally of any race or religion you can come here and and as you said just the opportunity to keep what i work keep what i work for not even given anything just give me what i work for. that's why i will always love weightlifting as opposed to being pre-med and i'd get a 99 and the average would be a 45 and then everyone else gets a 60 i'd always get really angry at that because i'm like no i studied to have a 99 and to be higher than everyone else what i love about weightlifting is, is there's no tax it's it's all mine and if i don't do anything all that fat is all mine. It is truth. And that's one thing I love. I'm like, the United States is weightlifting. It's the freedom to come here to work out and get to keep the muscle. Or to not do that. And to me, that is something worth defending. It's it's not for the glory of the queen. It is not for whatever, for the empire. It's a place where you can come here and say, I want to serve this country till the day I die. Or to say, I want to cook pancakes. More power to you. Open a pancake house. Be the best one ever. That, to me, is something worth fighting for. Um, to kind of pivot from there, when you look at something like 9-11, and you're in the CTC, and you're watching it, and this isn't, this isn't World War II where we can just roll in with tanks and just war of attrition. This isn't the Cold War where, you know, despite all the, the covert ops going on, it's also nuclear tip missiles out in Montana on submarines in bombers satellite programs overhead watching everything sosis nets on the coast detecting everything that itself was an era of fighting that's now gone all those things still exist to uh box cutters and forged documents using airliners to take out buildings to now whatever generation of warfare we're at now with you know, bots online, censorship, misinformation, disinformation. Um, just two weeks ago, I had on Ken Alabek, who is the head of the Soviet Union bioweapon program, defected to the United States in 1992. He said unequivocally COVID-19 was made in the lab. The premier expert on the planet. When you see this, and it's such an insane battlefield, it's not a battlefield of guns, it's 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 websites and 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 manufactured consent and you know false trending and manipulating manipulating views and likes and comments and even outright bioweapons that no border can stop and then you look back at your own experiences with 911 in the wake of traditional you know cold war or world war 2 Will we rise to the occasion and master this battlefield? I, I, I believe so. I truly, truly believe so. Um, I think that that's part of the American ethos, uh, whether we deny it or not, um, or entertain it or not. 
Um, I do believe that uh, people do rise to be to be the best. And you know, let's face it. You know, uh, a lot of people give Reagan credit for for the success he had against the Soviet Union, but you know, he had John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher in his corner too. You know, so it, it is a team sport. We we do have our allies and out there. So I, I do believe that people will continue to step up. I think that's a historical fact. You know, you 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 mentioned some of the uh, the last of the lunge, Genghis Khan, Alexander, and so on and so on. If you really look at it, other than the nuclear threat, we're probably living in the most peaceful times that yeah. humans have ever enjoyed. Yeah. Especially if you live in the United States or in, in a democratic country, you know, because again, you know, places like Cuba, you know, um, they, they still are shooting people or incarcerating them just because they have an opinion. So, uh, I, I do believe that people do rise to the top. Uh, we will have a, the leaders, but we will always have challenges because the one thing that people, and I, this is not a religious comment, evil exists in the world. Communism has one goal, to dominate your body and soul, yeah. whether it's Chinese communism, Cuban communism, Russian communism. It's the same thing with radical you know, um, uh, religions, radical religions are, are, have one goal, is to control your mind, your body, your thought, your beliefs to the point that there's only one rule, whoever's ruling, you know, it's always from the top. And, and, and uh, that's the danger of that. It really is the antithesis of free will. Evil is, when I grew up, you imagine a, a demon with with wings and horns. But as you get older, at least for me, I realize that it's it's free will versus domination. There's a difference in saying, "Hey, I'm a I'm a white guy. I love the United States. I do a podcast, and you're a lesbian woman with blue hair, and you have nine dogs, and you know what?" That's not my cup of tea, but more power to you. And then they go, and I actually do have some. The, 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 actually, I can honestly say I do have a lesbian communist friend who looks at me and she goes, "She goes, I hate your podcast, but she goes, you know what? It's not for me." And I'm like, "That is, I would not expect that answer, but thank you." That's the difference: is to go, "Wow, you know what? Okay, cool." Versus this is who I am, and everyone is now. Uh, required to subscribe, you are required to buy Mr. Prado's book, and you better put a flag behind your camera. That's not, that's not a love of nation. That's not voluntary. That's that's a form of rape. There's a form of, of spiritual rape. It is, it is to insert yourself where you are not welcome, and then demand to be applauded for your presence. It's not enough that you hail the state. When Kim Jong Un died. You had to be crying. And I don't know if you've ever seen those videos of people crying. And it is eerie beyond any movie I've ever seen. I'm sure there were some brainwashed people, but there are people just forcing tears out because they know if they don't cry in public, when the nice men with the AKs walk around, they're dead. That's that's hell. That's Dante's Inferno. It's not fire and brimstone. It's it's not having your own your ability to say that's not my cup of tea. I don't like that. That's what it is. Is free will versus just total, total presence of total power, of your soul 
your body and your mind. That is evil. That is pure evil. Um, well, I know we've been running for about an hour. I could talk to you for several hours, but out of of courtesy, I I won't keep you much longer. I did wanna, I did wanna pick your brain because this is one thing I always love. Is just you know, as I've talked about in this podcast from Tom Brady to Wild Bill to Ronald Reagan's SDI, you know, strategic defense initiative. I just always love the peak of the peak of the peak of the peak. It just I'll I'll never not I'll never not love it. If you're not. I'm from New England, but man, there is something awesome about the Yankees that they've just won so many. I'm sure my dad will disown me after I said that, but I, I'm obsessed with madness. I'm obsessed with the best ever. I don't want anything other than that. Is there, like you said, when you work in the agency, you always wonder, is there the ultra secret? Is there the eighth floor? Are there the basement warriors? Is there any evidence to that or is or is it just myth? I know you said you you learned that it is myth. It, it is myth, and, and I will tell you that it's actually a good myth yeah. to interest because it shows you that in spite of the fact that we have the Billy Walls and the Jose Rodriguez's and the Kofor Blacks, that we still, you know, feel like we could do more, that there's gotta be something more to this. And, and, I, and I mentioned that about Billy before. Billy is a guy who's given 40 years of his life, oh, 60 years of his life, or 80 years of his life, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> almost. Yeah. Um, and, and he still does not feel like they are doing enough. And, and I think that's a very healthy thing to think that, you know, God, they turned us down on this again. There's got to be a secret CIA. There's got to be something in the basement. Well, that gives you hope. Even yeah. if it's, if, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it, it is a, a fantasy, but it, it, it speaks volumes that you are not satisfied in spite of the great successes that you're having. Yeah, it is. It's a form of psychological warfare on yourself, but instead of demoralization, it is, it is moralization. You go, There's something deeper. There's something, there's gotta be something. I studied. I studied for the MCAT for nine months, the medical college admissions test, starting in September 2012. I took the test on May 30th, 2013. And I can never get above the 60th percentile. And I hated it because I was a straight A student and I was cocky. And I was like, I am better than this. I am I am better than this. And it was my own ego. And I just couldn't get there. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get farther. And I just kept studying and I kept studying and I just decided, I was like, I'm going to study up until the day of the test. I don't give a shit what happens. Like I have, I will break this or it will break me, but there's no draw. And I kept studying. And in the last like four days, I went from 60th percentile to 70th to 80th to 90th. And then I took the test the day of and scored in the 95th. And it was in the last four days of whatever three fourths of a year is 270 days of studying. It was the last four days that yielded an extra 50%, almost 50%. And it's been nine years. I didn't go to medical school. I'm doing a podcast now, but I'm still pissed off about that. 95. I'm still pissed. It's actually 95.6. Not that I remember, 
I'm still pissed off. I remember all my friends were like, dude, you did it. You nailed it. And I just remember staring at the score, just fuming. And I was like, I'm fucking smarter than this. I think you need that madness. I wouldn't live a life without that madness. And a critic might say, well, you'll never be satisfied. Now, no, the, the beauty is in the pursuit, whether it's CIA black ops or studying for the MCAT. The beauty is in the pursuit. It makes Absolutely. every, it's almost a religious experience. It makes every day anew. You're like, what, how do I get better? How, and it's a fate worse than death to voluntarily go, I'm done. I mean, God, shoot me if I do that. If I ever do that, shoot me and bury me in an unmarked grave because my soul will have. Hey, dead can't quit. Hell yeah, um, Mr. Prado, that was so cool. Thank you so much for coming on here, man. I know I've been talking my talking your ear off, but I I do that when I get nervous, and uh, you're definitely one of the uh, you're one of the few people that. Ooh, okay, I gotta get ready for this one. I rarely wear a polo, but that's uh that's my sign of respect. Um, but yeah, dude, you're definitely one of the coolest guys I've interviewed. You're up there with, uh, you're up there with Charlie Duke, the youngest man to walk on the moon. That guy was another, you talk to him, you talk about, yeah, madness. You gotta have that madness. And I will shamelessly ask, uh, please put in a good word to Billy Waugh for me. I've tried to get him on here for the last couple of years. I just assume he's not doing interviews, but I have, a. I'm dumb enough to email former ground branch guys and lucky enough to get him to come on now. I'm four for four. Well, not Billy Wall. So I'm four for five. Just put in a good word for me. And um, you're closing. I, I tell you what, if, sir, if you're ever, look, you're ever willing to do it on in person, I can, I can make that happen because I've done it uh, for, for a couple of, as a matter of fact, uh, recoil magazine, which I'm sure you're aware of uh, is doing a piece uh, on the book and on my book and everything else. And it was the same thing. Tom Marshall, who's the editor says, Rick, I see that you, that you know, Billy Wall. Can you, I mean, I want to interview him. Well, it's doing, but he cannot really leave the house anymore. Sure. Uh, his legs are very in bad shape. That's why most of his rounds when he was uh, blown up uh, and shot up. So, uh, Hey, if you're ever willing to ta travel to Tampa, to, to meet him, uh, I will be uh, gladly to broker that. Don't wait too long because let's face it, 92 is the wrong side of the calendar. So. Yes, sir. I, I will 100% make that happen. That will be my personal journey because I hate the heat. I'm in Maryland and it's too hot for me, but I will go down into the, the, the depths of the depths of hell. I would love to do that. That would be amazing. I will 100% do that. Um, yeah. You're the coolest, Mr. Prado. Thank you so much for coming on here. Please go get his book. It is insane. There's nothing more badass than, a, what was it? You put two sim rounds in his face and one in his buddy's face and said, how'd I do? <laughs> we just wanted money. Oh, shit. <laughs> what a great line, man. What a great line. Um, yeah, dude, you're the coolest. I would absolutely love to have you back on here. I will get back to you about interviewing Billy Waugh. I will, I'll have to wear a diaper because I'll shit myself if I get to meet him. And, uh, Thank you so much, man. Mr. Prado, closing thoughts, closing words. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a really uh, challenging dealing with somebody as smart as you. I mean, you're oh. throwing stuff at me that I'm, God, I'm trying to remember what he's talking about. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's what I strive for. When I had on Mike Durant, the Black Hawk Down pilot, 
I remember I emailed him. I was like, I read your, I read your book three times. And then he also wrote another book called Night Stalkers about the actual one uh, sixtieth. He, he got back to me and he goes, Oh God, he goes, I haven't thought about that stuff in 10 years. And I was like, good. <laughs> I, I want to put you on your back foot. That's all I got. You're in ground branch. He's in one sixtieth. I'm like, Hey, the podcast is my arena. I'd be lying if I said I didn't take a little bit of joy on putting the heat on you. I have to. You're the best. God bless you. God bless men like you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. I'll email you this episode when it's up. Guys, go get the book. I got nothing else to say. You're the coolest. You're the coolest. You're the OG. Thank you, sir. God bless. God bless.